Book One, Section Twenty Seven of On Duties by Cicero, translated by Walter Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. Twenty Seven. We have next to discuss the one remaining division of moral rectitude that is the one in which we find considerateness and self-control which give as it were a sort of polish to life it embraces also temperance complete subjection of all the passions and moderation in all things under this head is further included what in latin may be called decorum propriety for in greek it is called prepon such is its essential nature that it is inseparable from moral goodness for what is proper is morally right and what is morally right is proper the nature of the difference between morality and propriety can be more easily felt than expressed for whatever propriety may be it is manifested only when there is pre-existing moral rectitude and so not only in this division of moral rectitude which we have now to discuss but also in the three preceding divisions it is clearly brought out what propriety is for to employ reason and speech rationally to do with careful consideration whatever one does and in everything to discern the truth and to uphold it that is proper to be mistaken on the other hand to miss the truth to fall into error to be led astray that is as improper as to be deranged and lose one's mind and all things just are proper all things unjust like all things immoral are improper the relation of propriety to fortitude is similar what is done in a manly and courageous spirit seems becoming to a man and proper what is done in a contrary fashion is at once immoral and improper this propriety therefore of which i am speaking belongs to each division of moral rectitude and its relation to the cardinal virtues is so close that it is perfectly self-evident and does not require any abstruse process of reasoning to see it for there is a certain element of propriety perceptible in every act of moral rectitude and this can be separated from virtue theoretically better than it can be practically as comeliness and beauty of person are inseparable from the notion of health so this propriety of which we are speaking while in fact completely blended with virtue is mentally and theoretically distinguishable from it the classification of propriety moreover is twofold one we assume a general sort of propriety which is found in moral goodness as a whole then two there is another propriety subordinate to this which belongs to the several divisions of moral goodness the former is usually defined somewhat as follows propriety is that which harmonizes with man's superiority in those respects in which his nature differs from that of the rest of the animal creation and they so define the special type of propriety which is subordinate to the general notion that they represent it to be that propriety which harmonizes with nature in the sense that it manifestly embraces temperance and self-control together with a certain deportment such as becomes a gentleman twenty eight that this is the common acceptation of propriety we may infer from that propriety which poets aim to secure concerning that 
i have occasion to say more in another connection now we say that the poets observe propriety when every word or action is in accord with each individual character for example if aeacus or minus said let them hate if only they fear or the father is himself his children's tomb that would seem improper because we are told that they were just men but when atreus speaks those lines they call forth applause for the sentiment is in keeping with the character but it will rest with the poets to decide according to the individual characters what is proper for each but to us nature herself has assigned a character of surpassing excellence far superior to that of all other living creatures and in accordance with that we shall have to decide what propriety requires the poets will observe therefore amid a great variety of characters what is suitable and proper for all even for the bad but to us nature has assigned the roles of steadfastness temperance self-control and considerateness of others nature also teaches us not to be careless in our behaviour towards our fellow-men hence we may clearly see how wide is the application not only of that propriety which is essential to moral rectitude in general but also of the special propriety which is displayed in each particular subdivision of virtue for as physical beauty with harmonious symmetry of the limbs engages the attention and delights the eye for the very reason that all the parts combine in harmony and grace so this propriety which shines out in our conduct engages the approbation of our fellow-men by the order consistency and self-control it imposes upon every word and deed we should therefore in our dealings with people show what i may almost call reverence towards all men not only towards the men who are the best but towards others as well for indifference to public opinion implies not merely self-sufficiency but even total lack of principle there is too a difference between justice and considerateness in one's relations to one's fellow-men it is the function of justice not to do wrong to one's fellow-men of considerateness not to wound their feelings and in this the essence of propriety is best seen with the foregoing exposition i think it is clear what the nature is of what we term propriety further as to the duty which has its source in propriety the first road on which it conducts us leads to harmony with nature and the faithful observance of her laws if we follow nature as our guide we shall never go astray but we shall be pursuing that which is in its nature clear-sighted and penetrating wisdom that which is adapted to promote and strengthen society justice and that which is strong and courageous fortitude but the very essence of propriety is found in the division of virtue which is now under discussion temperance for it is only when they agree with nature's laws that we should give our approval to the movements not only of the body but still more of the spirit now we find that the essential activity of the spirit is twofold one force is appetite that is horme in greek which impels a man this way and that the other is reason which teaches and explains what should be done and what should be left undone the result is that reason commands appetite obeys twenty nine again 
every action ought to be free from undue haste or carelessness neither ought we to do anything for which we cannot assign a reasonable motive for in these words we have practically a definition of duty the appetites moreover must be made to obey the reins of reason and neither allowed to run ahead of it nor from listlessness or indolence to lag behind but people should enjoy calm of soul and be free from every sort of passion as a result strength of character and self-control will shine forth in all their lustre for when appetites overstep their bounds and galloping away so to speak whether in desire or aversion are not well held in hand by reason they clearly overleap all bound and measure for they throw obedience off and leave it behind and refuse to obey the reins of reason to which they are subject by nature's laws and not only minds but bodies as well are disordered by such appetites we need only to look at the faces of men in a rage or under the influence of some passion or fear or beside themselves with extravagant joy in every instance their features voices motions attitudes undergo a change from all this to return to our sketch of duty we see that all the appetites must be controlled and calmed and that we must take infinite pains not to do anything from mere impulse or at random without due consideration and care for nature has not brought us into the world to act as if we were created for play or jest but rather for earnestness and for some more serious and important pursuits we may of course indulge in sport and jest but in the same way as we enjoy sleep or other relaxations and only when we have satisfied the claims of our earnest serious tasks further than that the manner of jesting itself ought not to be extravagant or immoderate but refined and witty for as we do not grant our children unlimited license to play but only such freedom as is not incompatible with good conduct so even in our jesting let the light of a pure character shine forth there are generally speaking two sorts of jest the one coarse rude vicious indecent the other refined polite clever witty with this latter sort not only our own plotus and the old comedy of athens but also the books of socratic philosophy abound and we have many witty sayings of many men like those collected by old cato under the title of bon mots or apothems so the distinction between the elegant and the vulgar jest is an easy matter the one kind if well timed for instance in hours of mental relaxation is becoming to the most dignified person the other is unfit for any gentleman if the subject is indecent and the words obscene then too certain bounds must be observed in our amusements and we must be careful not to carry things too far and swept away by our passions lapse into some shameful excess our campus however and the amusements of the chase are examples of wholesome recreation thirty but it is essential to every inquiry about duty that we keep before our eyes how far superior man is by nature to cattle and other beasts they have no thought except for sensual pleasure and this they are impelled by every instinct to seek but man's mind is nurtured by study and meditation he is always either investigating or doing and he is captivated by the pleasure of seeing and hearing nay 
even if a man is more than ordinarily inclined to sensual pleasures, provided, of course, that he be not quite on a level with the beasts of the field, for some people are men only in name, not in fact, if, I say, he is a little too susceptible to the attractions of pleasure, he hides the fact, however much he may be caught in its toils, and for very shame conceals his appetite. From this we see that sensual pleasure is quite unworthy of the dignity of man, and that we ought to despise it, and cast it from us. But if some one should be found who sets some value upon sensual gratification, he must keep strictly within the limits of moderate indulgence. One's physical comforts and wants, therefore, should be ordered according to the demands of health and strength, not according to the calls of pleasure. And, if we will only bear in mind the superiority and dignity of our nature, we shall realize how wrong it is to abandon ourselves to excess, and to live in luxury and voluptuousness, and how right it is to live in thrift, self-denial, simplicity, and sobriety. We must realize also that we are invested by nature with two characters, as it were. One of these is universal, arising from the fact of our being all alike endowed with reason, and with that superiority which lifts us above the brute. From this all morality and propriety are derived, and upon it depends the rational method of ascertaining our duty. The other character is the one that is assigned to individuals in particular. In the matter of physical endowment there are great differences. Some, we see, excel in speed for the race, others in strength for wrestling. So, in point of personal appearance, some have stateliness, others comeliness. Diversities of character are greater still. Lucius Crassus and Lucius Philippus had a large fund of wit. Gaius Caesar, Lucius's son, had a still richer fund, and employed it with more studied purpose. Contemporary with them, Marcus Scaurus and Marcus Drusus, the younger, were examples of unusual seriousness. Gaius Lilius of unbounded jollity, while his intimate friend Scipio cherished more serious ideals and lived a more austere life. Among the Greeks, history tells us Socrates was fascinating and witty, a genial conversationalist. He was what the Greeks call Aeron, in every conversation, pretending to need information and professing admiration for the wisdom of his companion. Pythagoras and Pericles, on the other hand, reached the heights of influence and power without any seasoning of mirthfulness. We read that Hannibal among the Carthaginian generals, and Quintus Maximus among our own, were shrewd and ready at concealing their plans, covering up their tracks, disguising their movements, laying stratagems, forestalling the enemy's designs. In these qualities the Greeks rank Themistocles and Jason of Fieri above all others. Especially crafty and shrewd was the device of Solon, who, to make his own life safer, and at the same time to do a considerably larger service for his country, feigned insanity. Then there are others, quite different from these, straightforward and open, who think that nothing should be done by underhand means or treachery. They are lovers of truth, haters of fraud. There are others still, who will stoop to anything, truckle to anybody, if only they may gain their ends. Such, we saw, were Sulla and Marcus Crassus. The most crafty and most persevering man of this type was Lysander of Sparta, we are told. 
of the opposite type was Callicratidas, who succeeded Lysander as admiral of the fleet. So we find that another, no matter how eminent he may be, will condescend in social intercourse to make himself appear but a very ordinary person. Such graciousness of manner we have seen in the case of Catulus, both father and son, and also of Quintus Mucius Mancia. I have heard from my elders that Publius Scipio Nasica was another master of this art, but his father, on the other hand, the man who punished Tiberius Gracchus for his nefarious undertakings, had no such gracious manner in social intercourse, and because of that very fact he rose to greatness and fame. Countless other dissimilarities exist in natures and characters, and they are not in the least to be criticized. 31. Everybody, however, must resolutely hold fast to his own peculiar gifts, in so far as they are peculiar only and not vicious, in order that propriety, which is the object of our inquiry, may the more easily be secured. For we must so act as not to oppose the universal laws of human nature, but, while safeguarding those, to follow the bent of our own particular nature, and even if other careers should be better and nobler, we may still regulate our own pursuits by the standard of our own nature. For it is of no avail to fight against one's nature, or to aim at what is impossible of attainment. From this fact the nature of that propriety defined above comes into still clearer light, inasmuch as nothing is proper that goes against the grain, as the saying is, that is, if it is in direct opposition to one's natural genius. If there is any such thing as propriety at all, it can be nothing more than uniform consistency in the course of our life as a whole, and all its individual actions. And this uniform consistency one could not maintain by copying the personal traits of others and eliminating one's own. For, as we ought to employ our mother tongue, lest, like certain people who are continually dragging in Greek words, we draw well-deserved ridicule upon ourselves, so we ought not to introduce anything foreign into our actions or our life in general. Indeed, such diversity of character carries with it so great significance that suicide may be for one man a duty, for another, under the same circumstances, a crime. Did Marcus Cato find himself in one predicament, and were the others who surrendered to Caesar in Africa in another? And yet perhaps they would have been condemned if they had taken their lives, for their mode of life had been less austere and their characters more pliable. But Cato had been endowed by nature with an austerity beyond belief, and he himself had strengthened it by unswerving consistency, and had remained ever true to his purpose and fixed resolve, and it was for him to die rather than to look upon the face of a tyrant. How much Ulysses endured on those long wanderings, when he submitted to the service even of women, if Circe and Calypso may be called women, and strove in every word to be courteous and complacent to all, and arrived at home, he brooked even the insults of his men-servants and maid-servants, in order to attain in the end the object of his desire. But Ajax, with the temper he is represented as having, would have chosen to meet death a thousand times, rather than suffer such indignities. If we take this into consideration, we shall see 
that it is each man's duty to weigh well what are his own peculiar traits of character to regulate these properly and not to wish to try how another man's would suit him for the more peculiarly his own a man's character is the better it fits him every one therefore should make a proper estimate of his own natural ability and show himself a critical judge of his own merits and defects in this respect we should not let actors display more practical wisdom than we have they select not the best plays but the ones best suited to their talents those who rely most upon the quality of their voice take the epigonae and the metis those who place more stress upon the action choose the melanipa and the clytemnistra rupilius whom i remember always played in the antiope isopus rarely in the ajax shall the player have regard to this in choosing his role upon the stage and a wise man fail to do so in selecting his part in life we shall therefore work to the best advantage in that role to which we are best adapted but if at some time stress of circumstances shall thrust us aside into some uncongenial part we must devote to it all possible thought practice and pains that we may be able to perform it if not with propriety at least with as little impropriety as possible and we need not strive so hard to attain to points of excellence that have not been vouchsafed to us as to correct the faults we have thirty two to the two above-mentioned characters is added a third which some chance or some circumstance imposes and a fourth also which we assume by our own deliberate choice regal powers and military commands nobility of birth and political office wealth and influence and their opposites depend upon chance and are therefore controlled by circumstances but what role we ourselves may choose to sustain is decided by our own free choice and so some turn to philosophy others to the civil law and still others to oratory while in case of the virtues themselves one man prefers to excel in one another in another they whose fathers or forefathers have achieved distinction in some particular field often strive to attain eminence in the same department of service for example quintus the son of publius mucius in the law africanus the son of paulus in the army and to that distinction which they have severally inherited from their fathers some have added lustre of their own for example that same africanus who crowned his inherited military glory with his own eloquence timotheus conon's son did the same he proved himself not inferior to his father in military renown and added to that distinction the glory of culture and intellectual power it happens sometimes too that a man declines to follow in the footsteps of his fathers and pursues a vocation of his own and in such callings those very frequently achieve signal success who though sprung from humble parentage have set their aims high all these questions therefore we ought to bear thoughtfully in mind when we inquire into the nature of propriety but above all we must decide who and what manner of men we wish to be and what calling in life we would follow and this is the most difficult problem in the world for it is in the years of early youth when our judgment is most immature that each of us decides that his calling in life shall be that to which he has taken a special liking 
and thus he becomes engaged in some particular calling and career in life before he is fit to decide intelligently what is best for him for we cannot all have the experience of hercules as we find it in the words of prodicus in xenophon when hercules was just coming into youth's estate the time which nature has appointed unto every man for choosing the path of life on which he would enter he went out into a desert place and as he saw two paths the path of pleasure and the path of virtue he sat down and debated long and earnestly which one it were better for him to take this might perhaps happen to a hercules scion of the seed of jove but it cannot well happen to us for we copy each the model he fancies and we are constrained to adopt their pursuits and vocations but usually we are so imbued with the teachings of our parents that we fall irresistibly into their manners and customs others drift with the current of popular opinion and make a special choice of those callings which the majority find most attractive some however as the result either of some happy fortune or of natural ability enter upon the right path of life without parental guidance thirty three there is one class of people that is very rarely met with it is composed of those who are endowed with marked natural ability or exceptional advantages of education and culture or both and who also have time to consider carefully what career in life they prefer to follow and in this deliberation the decision must turn wholly upon each individual's natural bent for we try to find out from each one's native disposition as was said above just what is proper for him and this we require not only in case of each individual act but also in ordering the whole course of one's life and this last is a matter to which still greater care must be given in order that we may be true to ourselves throughout all our lives and not falter in the discharge of any duty but since the most powerful influence in the choice of a career is exerted by nature and the next most powerful by fortune we must of course take account of them both in deciding upon our calling in life but of the two nature claims the more attention for nature is so much more stable and steadfast that for fortune to come into conflict with nature seems like a combat between a mortal and a goddess if therefore any one has conformed his whole plan of life to the kind of nature that is his that is his better nature let him go on with it consistently for that is the essence of propriety unless perchance he should discover that he has made a mistake in choosing his life work if this should happen and it can easily happen he must change his vocation and mode of life if circumstances favor such change it will be effected with greater ease and convenience if not it must be made gradually step by step just as when friendships become no longer pleasing or desirable it is more proper so wise men think to undo the bond little by little than to sever it at a stroke and when we have once changed our calling in life we must take all possible care to make it clear that we have done so with good reason but whereas i said a moment ago that we have to follow in the steps of our fathers let me make the following exceptions first we need not imitate their faults second we need not imitate certain other things if our nature does not permit such imitation for example the son of the elder africanus that scipio who adopted the younger africanus the son of paulus 
could not on account of ill health be so much like his father as africanus had been like his if then a man is unable to conduct cases at the bar or to hold the people spellbound with his eloquence or to conduct wars still it will be his duty to practise these other virtues which are within his reach justice good faith generosity temperance self-control that his deficiencies in other respects may be less conspicuous the noblest heritage however that is handed down from fathers to children and one more precious than any inherited wealth is a reputation for virtue and worthy deeds and to dishonour this must be branded as a sin and a shame thirty four since too the duties that properly belong to different times of life are not the same but some belong to the young others to those more advanced in years a word must be said on this distinction also it is then the duty of a young man to show deference to his elders and to attach himself to the best and most approved of them so as to receive the benefit of their counsel and influence for the inexperience of youth requires the practical wisdom of age to strengthen and direct it and this time of life is above all to be protected against sensuality and trained to toil and endurance of both mind and body so as to be strong for active duty in military and civil service and even when they wish to relax their minds and give themselves up to enjoyment they should beware of excesses and bear in mind the rules of modesty and this will be easier if the young are not unwilling to have their elders join them even in their pleasures the old on the other hand should it seems have their physical labours reduced their mental activities should be actually increased they should endeavour too by means of their counsel and practical wisdom to be of as much service as possible to their friends and to the young and above all to the state but there is nothing against which old age has to be more on its guard than against surrendering to feebleness and idleness while luxury a vice in any time of life is in old age especially scandalous but if excess in sensual indulgence is added to luxurious living it is a twofold evil for old age not only disgraces itself it also serves to make the excesses of the young more shameless at this point it is not at all irrelevant to discuss the duties of magistrates of private individuals of native citizens and of foreigners it is then peculiarly the place of a magistrate to bear in mind that he represents the state and that it is his duty to uphold its honour and its dignity to enforce the law to dispense to all their constitutional rights and to remember that all this has been committed to him as a sacred trust the private individual ought first in private relations to live on fair and equal terms with his fellow-citizens with a spirit neither servile and grovelling nor yet domineering and second in matters pertaining to the state to labour for her peace and honour for such a man we are accustomed to esteem and call a good citizen as for the foreigner or the resident alien it is his duty to attend strictly to his own concerns not to pry into other people's business and under no condition to meddle in the politics of a country not his own in this way i think we shall have a fairly clear view of our duties when the question arises what is proper and what is appropriate to each character circumstance and age but there is nothing so essentially proper as to maintain consistency in the performance of every act 
and in the conception of every plan. End of section thirty four of book one. Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards.